Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. And to help us better understand President Biden's visit to Poland, we're happy to have with us Poland's Consul General in New York, Adrian Kubicki. Consul General Adrian Kubicki, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. Um, Consul General, if you could tell us what is the significance of President Biden giving this speech in Poland uh, earlier today? I think that the most important uh, is his presence in Poland right uh, ahead of the one year anniversary of Russian invasion in Ukraine and that clear message that uh, has been so sent out to Putin and to Russia uh, that NATO remains united and, and will continue its support to Ukraine until the last of the Russian soldiers leave uh, Ukraine. And I think that uh, having President Biden in Warsaw, particularly in the country that uh, was probably uh, one of the most and, and the first to provide Ukraine with the, with the needed help is something of, of a very symbolic meaning. But there is also the second part of President Biden's visit uh, to Poland. Tomorrow uh, he's going to meet with the B9 uh, countries, the eastern flank NATO countries, um, where um, we will have a chance to opportunity to discuss with uh, U.S. administration. Our countries will have a chance to discuss with uh, U.S. administration some of the measures that can be taken uh, in order to enhance uh, the security of our region, of uh, the eastern flank of NATO. Uh, so I think it's both symbolic and very productive and, and practical. Now, is there a concern that if Putin were to succeed in occupying uh, Ukraine or a major part of Ukraine, that uh, he might set his eyes on Poland? Absolutely, yes. Um, uh, Poland's perspective on the invasion is that it actually hasn't started um, uh, with the invasion in February last year. Uh, it rather started in 2014 with taking over Crimea or maybe even earlier in 2009 when Russia attempted the invasion of Georgia. And we know that they want to go farther. Today, uh, there were documents released. We still have to assess uh, the accuracy of those documents. Uh, but some documents r revealed uh, that the, the, the plans and attempts of um, including um, absorbing Belarus into Russia. So we know for sure that the ultimate goal for Putin is to reinstate Soviet Union, maybe uh, even go beyond. And eventually he will become a direct threat also to NATO countries, to Poland, to Baltic countries. Um, so so it, it is still a long-term plan for Putin and for Russia. Uh, with that being said, we also uh, see that Russia is not very much capable in terms of their military capabilities uh, to um, go anywhere beyond the Ukraine. They even struggle in Ukraine. So uh, we have this some period of time, uh, first of all, to uh, support uh, Ukraine with the new weaponry, with Western weaponry, to make sure that they are equipped well to push back Russian invaders and uh, also to enhance our security. NATO has, has to focus uh, on uh, enhancing security of its own members, uh, above all the members of the eastern flank of NATO. Now, some have actually said that uh, a potential silver, <clears throat> excuse me, silver lining to this uh, war 
is that Russia has exposed their ineptitude in war fighting, um, as you just mentioned. But how concerned are you that China uh, may, may start to now insert themselves into this conflict by extending military aid uh, to Russia? First of all, Russia is never as strong uh, as we assume, but also never as weak as, as we assume. Uh, as I said, it's a large organism uh, kind of ready, prepared uh, to survive a long period of time, even without uh, progress or visible actions. So this is something that we have to take into consideration. Recent analysis prove that Russian economy uh, is uh, kind of set to, um, to, to survive another few years of this invasion, even without any major progress. So uh, again, we cannot allow ourselves to underestimate uh, Russia. We still have to um, uh, treat it as a serious threat. And obviously, with other countries uh, jumping in to help Russia, including the biggest one, China, is something that might change the dynamics of this war. And obviously, this is something that we still hope is not going to happen. We should use all diplomatic channels and also uh, well, talk some senses to the Chinese leader. I don't think that from their perspective, having Russia as a strong and bigger neighbor is, is, is something that they uh, should really uh, support. Uh, but again, the puzzles that we, we see here uh, on a global scale uh, tells us that China is, has also uh, some game to play here. Um, and, and we might see some, some Chinese involvement into helping Russian, uh, the Russian efforts to take, take over Ukraine. Uh, but again, hopefully it is not a very likely scenario. Polish Consul General in New York, Adrian Kubicki, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. The weaponization of the federal government has been under the spotlight as of late. And now that House committees are looking into some of the allegations, there's more attention to this issue. We spoke with Michael Waller, senior analyst for strategy from the Center for Security Policy. Waller tells us about the concerning trend of less freedom of speech and more government censorship. Michael Waller, thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be with you, Steve. Michael, with regard to the weaponization of the uh, federal government, a lot of legacy media outlets, the New York Times, uh, NPR, they tend to downplay this like it's a non-issue. Uh, if you could you know, expound on this, tell us how, how serious of an issue is it actually? It's very serious, and these other media outlets are downplaying it because they're part of the weaponization. Uh, they make their livings from the leaks from the government officials who illegally give classified information to them so they can make their livings and weaponize it against the average citizen. Is there a solution, in your opinion, to getting these agencies that Americans have trusted for so long kind of back on track, or is it almost too late? It's, it's, it's every now and then you need to reorganize or abolish and replace with something new. So it's a question of that and, and, and then the limitations that they have right now. So if you have a divided Congress, and a president who wouldn't go along with it. What the House can do is simply refuse to fund things. If they refuse to fund, they can sort of force a lot of changes within the bureaucracies that aren't going to be overnight fixes, but they'll be on the way to de-weaponizing government. Speaking of the House, you have uh, the Judiciary, the Oversight Committee starting to look into some of these things. Uh, Jim Jordan's committee right now, are you optimistic with uh, what they have planned? Well, I'm optimistic with their intent, certainly, and their enthusiasm and their aggressiveness with doing what they're doing, but I don't 
I don't want them to keep expectations too high because when they talk about a Frank Church Committee, which was this 1970s committee to go after the FBI and CIA for their abuses, you know, Frank Church had 130 staffers, top flight lawyers, top flight investigators, a, co a cooperative CIA director, an FBI that was sort of adrift and whose leader wanted to fix things. So he had a lot of cooperation and a gigantic staff. The, the, Jim Jordan, he's doing a whole lot right now, but uh, they only have four or five staffers. So without a big staff, they're not going to get too far. And without an end game, what's their strategy? What do they want to accomplish? What legislative fixes or, or, or changes do they have? Uh, what do they want to see in the end? That hasn't been defined yet, but I think once they do get around to defining that, you'll see them be successful. Do you have a vision yourself and how you see this playing out or how it should play out? Yeah, first we have to shrink the role of government back to, its, back to a, a government that's uh, answerable to the citizen and not the other way around. Right now you have, uh, people are afraid. People are afraid to talk. People are afraid to have their phones with them. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And so, so when you have a government that's, that's that powerful and it's not even abiding by the law, mm -hmm. then you have something that's out of control. And you mentioned that the media is also part of the weaponization. So when you have, I mean, you know, FBI agents, CIA agents, they're all citizens. They consume media the way that we do. And so when you have such hyper-partisanship going on throughout the country, um, and the media tends to skew one way uh, than the other, it almost seems like an impossible challenge in a certain sense to, to get people back on the right track. It is. That's why whistleblowers are so important, because if you're an average person, even a government employee, you can't pay 800 bucks an hour for a lawyer for years. And, and you know, the government attorneys are going to drag this on for years because they get paid no matter what and it's your own money that they're using. So, so that's why whistleblowers are so important and there are legal mechanisms by which anybody in the government who sees wrongdoing can blow the whistle legally and any government employee can talk to Congress without fear of retaliation or so the law says. In reality they do fear retaliation that's why you have so few whistleblowers coming out. I want to get your thoughts on the uh, Twitter files. You've written about uh, these at length. First of all, I guess, do you feel as though this is something that the American people should take seriously? I think that the uh, um, legacy media has kind of written off Elon Musk as an eccentric kook and, and, and try to paint him as, as being crazy. Um, how valid is it, the FBI responding to some of them, as you pointed out in one of your articles, as uh, what they uh, have been exposed in those files as normal procedures? Is everything <laughs> above board from your perspective? No, it's not above board at all. You have, what's so eccentric about opening your files up completely to a group of honest left-wing journalists, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss. <laughs> right. And, and they, they sit there with the guys at Twitter headquarters on the computer say, okay, I want, I want word searches on this and that. And they're free to have anything they want. All they have to do is take out certain names and addresses for privacy purposes, which is legitimate, but they're free to see all this stuff. And then post whatever they want, post all of it for all the world to see and all the world to interpret. It's a gold mine of data. So what did it find? It found that the FBI 80 FBI agents in field offices across the country were going to Twitter saying, dig up dirt on this guy, censor that guy. And it's not a question of fighting terrorists or whatever. It's a question of political censorship 
of people exercising constitutionally protected free speech. Michael Waller, thank you so much. Good to be with you, Steve. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.